0: The text for this morning's message is found in the book of Acts. I invite you to turn there if you have a Bible. Acts chapter 9. We'll begin reading at verse 23. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down over the wall, lowering him in a basket. and disputed against the hellenist but they were seeking to kill him and when the brethren knew it they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it was multiplied now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints that lived at Lydia. There he found a man named Ananias, who had been beridden for eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Ananias, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was a Joppa, a disciple, named Tabitha, which means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. And in those days she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him entreating him, "'Please come to us without delay.' So Peter rose and went with them. And when he had come, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him weeping and showing tunics and other garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Then turning to the body, he said, "'Tabitha, rise!' And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and lifted her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive, and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in his name.
1: Before I begin, let me remind thee students among us, uh, college students, graduate students, international students, that there's a, a luncheon and reception for you after this service, too. I announced that last week. I want to make sure that you don't forget that you're invited to stay. Now, what I want to happen in this message is that your heart would be encouraged from the truth in this text that Jesus is alive and that he He turns things around. That's the phrase I want you to take away, Jesus turns things around. Or another way to put it would be, I want you to go away with a kind of open-ended expectancy about your heart, your mind, your personality, your family, your work, your world, your city, your school, that Jesus turns things around. That believing in the Jesus of the book of Acts means believing that he breaks in and turns things around. I think One of the most debilitating, one of the most devastating feelings in the human heart is fatalism. And what I mean by that big word fatalism is that it'll never change. I won't ever change. She won't ever change, my kids won't ever change, my job won't ever change, This city won't ever change, school won't ever change, the world won't ever change, abortion won't ever change, you name it, we're stuck with it. The powers are too deeply entrenched. We're just going to have to gut it out. It ain't going to change. That's fatalism. And I think that's an attitude that Jesus doesn't like at all because it's kind of practical atheism. It doesn't reckon with the God of the book of Acts who comes in and changes things. I think the message of the book of Acts is that that is not true. Fatalism is not true. I think that's the message of the book of Acts. Jesus is not dead. He's not silent. He's not disinterested. He's not weak. He is alive. He is powerful. He butts in and he changes life. He works new things. He does not like being put in the category of a boring, predictable person. He's not boring and he's not predictable. He is full of surprises. Jesus changes things. He turns things around. Churches, nations, families, personalities, peoples, enslavements. He changes. He turns people and nations and systems and problems around. He reverses things. Let's look at it in the text. The persecution that we're about to see the end of here began back in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, uh, and on that day, that is the day when Stephen was killed, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. But Saul, verse 3, Saul laid waste the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women, committed them to prison. And I can imagine, had I lived in that church in that day, that tiny little beleaguered church compared to the huge Roman Empire, and given the average human personality of not being a hoper and an optimist, I would have said, well, this is just the way it's going to be. The Romans are against us, Pilate. The Jews are against us, namely the Sanhedrin. Uh, The priests are against us. They empowered Saul to have these letters to go and drag people into jail. There's just no hope. It's too negative, too dangerous. There's nothing but persecution all around. It's been this way for quite a while. It's probably going to be this way until the Lord comes back. And so there's really no sense of hoping that things might turn around. That's the way we tend to be. There are a few wonderfully chronically faith-filled hopers around but not many most people are given to seeing the darkest side and the most pessimistic view on things and uh, just conclude uh, it's not going to change and the book of acts is written to show you that that's not true that is not true jesus is alive he is almighty He is infinitely wise, infinitely creative, infinitely resourceful, and he intrudes into this world and he turns things around. That's the message, I believe, of the book of Acts. He is not, and he dislikes being thought of as boringly predictable. He is not. He is full of surprises. And so suddenly, here in the book of Acts, suddenly, out of the blue... Jesus decides to take the chief persecutor of the church and make him the chief advocate of Christianity. Now, isn't that like Jesus? Whom shall I pick on here to reverse the state of affairs called persecution? Aha, I will take Saul, the one who's breathing out murders and threats, and I will stop him dead in his tracks, and I won't won't just kill him. That'd be easy. That would relieve the church. Kill him. Get him off the scene. I could do that. But I won't do that. I'll do something better and worse, as far as Paul's concerned, or Saul. I will make him into a chief exponent so that the hunter becomes the hunted and the persecutor becomes the persecuted and the killer becomes eventually the killed. And I will reverse everything in human history on this afternoon on the Damascus Road. Nobody can conceive of Christianity as we know it, apart from what Paul wrote in the New Testament. What Jesus was about to do in one split second on an afternoon on the way to Damascus, nobody dreamed of in the early church. All the pessimists were about to eat their words, who said, it'll never be the same. We could never know peace again. We're all going to be beat down forever. And God reached in and reversed things. And here's the way Luke, in this story, drives it home. He describes Paul's conversion. Then he describes Paul's preaching. Then he describes today... Paul's being persecuted to show the reversal is complete. The persecutor becomes the persecuted. Look at verse 23. Luke says that the Jews in Damascus plotted to kill him. And then he has to escape in verse 25 through the wall in a basket. That was so scary and so humiliating for Paul. He writes about it over in 2 Corinthians 11 as one of the low points of his life. Then in verse 29, Luke tells us that the Hellenists, once Paul gets down to Jerusalem, are also seeking to kill him. So the hunter is now the hunted. And to escape this time, he has to be sent out of the country on a boat to Tarsus. And the upshot of this dramatic reversal of one man's life is a dramatic reversal of the whole scene in the church life. Verse 31 of our text. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. Nobody would have dreamed of it. It wasn't going to happen. We were on a downward spiral to trouble and persecution and scattering and violence. Get yourself ready. Pull in your belt. Brace yourself. Trouble forever. And suddenly, it's different. He changes it. Jesus decides, I'm not going to let it be that way anymore. I'm going to bring peace for a while upon the church. And he takes Paul, turns him around, and changes everybody's attitude towards the church. No more persecution. Strange. Just keep your antennas up, brothers and sisters. Jesus is doing things in this world in Senate court hearings. And in all kinds of movements, he is doing things you never dreamed he might be doing in your life and in this world. And today, he's just as alive as he was then. You know, it's almost trite to talk about the USSR and the stunning speed with which changes have come about in the Soviet Union, used to be Union. That now there are independent states, there is a claim to democracy, there is an openness to Christianity. Who would have dreamed three years ago? I just want to scream. I did scream one time in 1988 in Denver. Some of you have listened to that tape on prayer. Where... I, I wanted to pull my hair out. I still do when I hear this sort of thing where presumed missions specialists with their bent towards uh, sociological fatalism say, by the year 2000, this number of percentage of countries will be a uh, limited access or creative access or hard to reach. And there will be X number of the people groups outside the realm of the possibility of entering by any kind of normal missionary activity. I just want to scream, say, how do you know? That's uh, so why I do scream whenever I say that. I say, how do you know that? Come on, tell me where you get the pride to presume, to predict that 80% of the unreached nations are going to be behind limited access walls by the year 2000. Jesus reigns. He changes things. He turns things around. Read your Bible. He is alive. Or are you a practical atheist? That's what I say when I get in the presence of those people. Wally, Wally Eschenauer, who's not one of those people, was here a year ago and he was talking about Ethiopia and I had mentioned to him that God had burdened my heart for about a year and a half to pray for Mongolia, North Korea, Albania, and Cuba. I just kept, they just kept coming to my mind over and over again. Break it open. Break it open. Jesus, just do a new thing. Turn it around. Shake it up. And he came up to me and he said, why don't you include Ethiopia? Because that's a, a USSR satellite on the east, eastern part of Africa. And uh, they're very Marxist at the time, and uh, they need your help. The church is underground for eight years. And so uh, I felt rebuked, and like that was a word from the Lord, and I should start including Ethiopia in my prayers. And I did. And are you aware of what has happened in Ethiopia in the last 12 months? I mean, our missionaries had to come home because of the violence, the civil war surrounding Ababa, but I just read in the SIM magazine the most stunning account of what God has done in recent months. Uh, Glasnost spread very quickly to Ethiopia, and uh, the country is just blown wide open. Churches are open, hymns are being sung, Bible is being read out loud. Two weeks after religious freedom was announced, there were 18,000 people on the meadow in one missionary's house. And he was trying to preach without a microphone and getting laryngitis, trying to speak to all these people like Whitfield and Wesley used to do several times a day. who had different kinds of vocal cords evidently than we do today. And what happened, I believe, is that Jesus in his headquarters in heaven sort of looked down and was watching this scene and guiding it in the way he uh, manipulated his uh, angels and his word, and uh, he just said, hmm. "Ethiopia, okay. Watch this. And it's open. Just kind of, I think he kind of looks sideways at his at his children who are pessimists and predicting things in Africa and how much will be closed and so on. He just, watch this. It's open, just like that. It's open." Jesus comes in and he turns things around. Then I got a letter on Friday, a postcard from Kurt Bowerman, who had lunch with Bill Bright on Monday, and uh, he said uh, that Mongolia will show the Jesus film in Mongolian for the first time on January 11, and Albania will show the Jesus film for the first time in Albanian on December 14 of this year. Greg Livingstone sent me a letter, which I got yesterday. Greg Livingstone is the uh, director of Frontiers, ministry to Muslims around the world. And he said, John, my heart is so much in awe at what God is doing, I can hardly sit down. I have recently been in Tirana, Albania, and joined in the street meetings where 300 Albanians gathered and stayed for hours asking questions. Seventy percent were Muslims, two hundred have decided to follow Christ, of which forty-three have already been baptized. And then listen to this paragraph, shifting to Bulgaria. Roger Malsted from our international headquarters here just returned from Bulgaria, where perhaps one thousand Muslim Turks have happily turned to Christ and worship in, I believe, eight different gatherings. Absolutely nothing like this has ever happened amongst Muslims in this area before. What is God doing? And my answer to Greg Livingstone, which I will no doubt write him in a letter, is God is doing the same thing he was doing in the book of Acts. Jesus is breaking in. Jesus is turning things around. Jesus is causing there to be events so that we have to say, where is the wise man? Where is the debater of this age? Where is the scribe? Does not God make the wisdom of man into foolishness? All those sociologically designed and mechanistically predictable events of what will be closed and what will be inaccessible in eight or ten years, he loves to blow those things apart. And we better not make too many plans on the basis of things that do not reckon with the living Jesus of the book of Acts. Intruding himself again and again and again in this world. In your life, in your family, in your job, in your city, in your nation, in your court system and in your nations. He intrudes and he turns things around. That's the way he is. That's the meaning, I believe, of the kingdom of God, The book of Acts is written to encourage us that what he began to do and to teach, he continues to do and to teach with infinite wisdom and omnipotence. Jesus doesn't like cyclical views of history. Jesus doesn't like cyclical, fatalistic views of personal life. I get better on Tuesday, I'm worse on Friday. That's the way it's always going to be. He doesn't like that. It's practical atheism. Jesus likes... And I want to help create this morning attitudes of expectant openness about your life, about this church, about your ministry and your job and this city. And anything that you think is so bad, it can't be turned around because Jesus is in the business of surprising people. It is not as though the yo-yo of fate Never breaks off and cuts some arc through the blue sky of God's unpredictable purpose. It does. It does come off the string. And then God takes over and guides it. The world is not a machine. It's a drama. And there is a live author director who loves to surprise his actors by jumping over the back set onto the stage. And starts doing things. The actors are, this isn't in the script. What are you doing here? That's the way Jesus is. He writes the drama. And he directs the drama. And now and then, and more often than we realize, he jumps onto the set of the drama, totally unexpected, and changes the whole thing around. You thought you were going to read these next lines, and boom, Jesus is there turning things around. That's the way he is. I want you to be like Clyde Kilby. My old literature teacher from Wheaton wrote this when he was an old man, still dreaming. I shall not fall into the falsehood that this day or any day is merely another ambiguous and plodding 24 hours, but rather a unique event filled with worthy potentialities. I shall bet my life on the assumption that this world is not idiotic, Neither run by an absentee landlord, but that today, this very day, some stroke is being added to the cosmic canvas that in due course I shall understand with joy as a stroke made by the architect who calls himself Alpha and Omega. So verse 31 says that the church had peace and was built up. Jesus turned it around. No more persecution, at least not for a while. The persecutor was now the persecuted. He was out of the country and peace reigned. Now, during this time of peace, Jesus didn't stop turning things around. That's the point of the next two stories, just briefly. He didn't stop turning things around. In peacetime, he keeps on turning things around. Verse 32, Peter goes down to Lydda, northwest of Jerusalem, and he finds a paralyzed man named Aeneas. He's been paralyzed for eight years. And uh, in verse 34... Peter, sensing God's power on him, looks at Aeneas and says, Jesus heals you. Get up. And Jesus comes in, turns his life around, turns it totally around. Then, in verse 39, Peter goes down to Lydda, which is on the, uh, from Lydda to Joppa, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and, and there he's confronted with a dead disciple tabitha was her name and uh, he puts everybody out of the room and he kneels down and he prays you know what prayer is prayer is an expression of belief that jesus turns things around that's what prayer is prayer is an expression of belief that jesus turns things around so peter bows and he tries to get in tune with god here and he gets the answer to his prayer And with the answer to his prayer in his heart, he turns to this dead woman and says, Tabitha, get up. And she gets up. And Jesus breaks in and turns things around, turns death around into life. And just like today in the USSR and Ethiopia and Mongolia and Albania, whenever God dramatically turns things around, people turn to God. Look at verse 35. All the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw Aeneas healed and they turned to the Lord. So Jesus turns Aeneas around and they turned to the Lord. Look at verse 42. Tabitha's return to life became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. So he turned her around from death to life and many turned to him and believed in the Lord. Now my own conviction is... That Jesus intends and means to keep on doing mighty turnings around in our day. He has surprises in store for you and for me and for this church and for this city and for this world. That if you were to write the book of the rest of history, you'd never dream to write it the way he's going to write it. He's going to surprise us again and again. And so my final question, closing question, is what should we do? And instead of my spinning off into some ideas that I have that I'd love to talk about, I'm going to limit myself to the second half of verse 31 as we close and say this is what we should do right here. This is the atmosphere in which Jesus was doing these kinds of things. Verse 31, the second half, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church was multiplied. The atmosphere into which Jesus broke with turning power was an atmosphere that had two aspects. The fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that strange? Aren't those opposites? Fear and comfort? When you're fearful, you want to be comforted, don't you? And when you're comforted, you aren't fearful, are you? So aren't those opposites? How can they be walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit? Are the Lord and the Holy Spirit sort of I'll get him today, I'll get him tomorrow. I'll make him afraid, I'll make him comfortable. The fear of the Lord is not opposite to the comfort of the Holy Spirit, I don't think. The fear of the Lord is standing in awe of his infinite holiness and infinite power and infinite readiness to suddenly break in on life with stunning power. If you would ever get close enough to see God in his holiness and power and excellence and beauty draw near to you, you would tremble. We must tremble in the presence of God. This is the man to whom I will look, says the Lord. He who trembles at my word, Isaiah said. So the fear of the Lord is a kind of trembling proximity to a God of holiness and power. But there is also this comfort from the Holy Spirit that that settles over the soul and makes it calm and peaceful. And as I sat back last night, as I wound this up, and asked the Lord for an analogy, is there a picture that I could use, Lord, to close the message? This is what came to my mind. Namely, the picture of a hurricane and the eye of the storm. And I want to suggest to you that living the Christian life in the book of Acts style, is flying in the eye of a hurricane. So I went to my encyclopedia to check out my meteorological ignorance and find out if I was right about this. And, uh, and we all know that hurricanes have winds beginning at 75 miles an hour and then going up to 200 miles an hour. And uh, they whirl like this and they devastate whatever comes in their path, especially if they get on land. And the eye of the hurricane is a little pocket at the middle. And this is what my encyclopedia said about it. By contrast, the hurricane eye is almost calm, experiences little or no precipitation, and is often exposed to blue sky. I thought, now that's, that's exactly what I want for the end of the sermon tomorrow. I believe that the way to live your life in such a way that Jesus breaks in and turns things around is to live your life in the eye of a hurricane. The hurricane is the indescribable power of the living God surrounding you. And it says you don't trifle with this God, you don't treat him as negligible, You don't pussyfoot around with this God. You take him seriously and you tremble at his power and his word, his holiness. You feel enclosed by this God. But the enclosure has you in a pocket of love and security and care and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And when those things mingle in your life, namely a trembling sense of awe at the unspeakable power of Almighty God, And the comfortable blue sky hope overhead and no gloomy precipitation coming down and just calm and comfort welling up within. When those two things combine, Jesus turns things around. And I commend it to you. I call for you now. Rest in the eye of his love and care tremble at his power and the wind of his holy might and be on the alert with a sense of open expectancy that he will break in and turn things around. I'm going to invite our prayer teams to come take their place right now. I want you to see as we pray in closing that we really do have teams of people who want to pray with you. And uh, there are some of you out there that God is touching and saying, I got some things to turn around in your life. And these people are here to join your heart in asking God to do the turnaround that you need. And it could be anything under the sun. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I long for your people to take away from this service now a sense of expectancy that you turn things around. Things will not always be as they have been. That's the point. Of the sovereign freedom of Jesus in the book of Acts. Grant, I pray, that all over this congregation right now, you would turn things around. Move on people's lives, I pray, and turn them around. Turn around their work, turn around their families, turn around their minds and hearts, turn around their emotions, turn around our city. Turn around our nation. Turn around your church and let there be triumph for the cause of Christ. And all the people said, Amen.